Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen concludes her two-part discussion with Dr. Kirk Austin on understanding attachment within the complex care and intervention model. Hey everybody, it's Karen Doyle Buckwalter, host of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast from here at the Knowledge Center at Shadok. And I'm very happy to be back with you again today for another podcast episode. Today, we're going to be interviewing Dr. Kirk Austin, and Dr. Austin is a registered clinical counselor in the province of British Columbia, Canada. He's actively involved in training foster parents, psychotherapists, social workers, and educators in the effective use of complex care and intervention model. model. So it's called CCI, Complex Care and Intervention Model, is uh, what they are using. Um, where he works in terms of working with kids and families. He received his undergraduate degree in psychology from Trinity Western University before completing his MA in counseling psychology at Liberty University. And prior to earning his doctorate in the field of positive psychology at the University of South Africa, he completed a diploma in adult education at Vancouver Community College. He currently works in a psychosocial oncology at the BC Cancer Agency Center and is on the adjunct faculty of, I hope I say this correctly, the Kwantlen Polytechnic University. He's also served as training director of Complex Trauma Resources since 2012. So we're going to be talking to Dr. Austin about their really wonderful, comprehensive approach to working with child trauma and attachment issues. And I think it's going to be a very interesting discussion. And so I will be back in just a sec uh, to begin the interview with Dr. Austin. Thanks all you listeners out there for being here. Join the Knowledge Center for an experiential workshop designed to support successful engagement of parents in the child therapy process. Karen Doyle Buckwalter will be joining Daphna Lender for the other half of the equation, engaging parents in child therapy. This two-day workshop on September 24th and 25th will focus on how to identify parents who need more focused work, how to set goals for the parent, how to help parents initiate repair, and more areas to help the child, parent, and therapist get the most out of the therapy session. Registration is open now. For more information or to register for the workshop, head to tkcchaddock.org. Hey, good to uh, continue talking, Dr. Austin. And we ended last week. Uh, we were talking about um, getting further into the seven domains of complex trauma, how you work with attachment, how you kind of explain some of this to folks that have a real behavioral paradigm yeah. um, that they're working out of. Um I think it would be good for listeners if you just kind of mention those seven domains and a little bit more about each one. I know you've been referring to some of them throughout okay. the conversation, but yeah. just to kind of ground people for this part of our conversation. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I, in segment one, I'd mentioned that I live in a province in Canada that's uh, just above Washington on the on the west side of, of uh, North America. 
Um, and a province is like a state. And so our province is called British Columbia, and we refer to it here as BC. It's just a shorter way of, it's like saying Washington, D.C. Um, and so our acronym, the one that we use for our, our uh, the model uh, that we use around the province, uh, we would say, no one eats apples in BC. And it's a little acronym that references larger domains that we look at. And so the N would represent uh, neurological and biological maturity. That's typically where brain development, body development happens in the life of um, every one of us. But in the, in the lives of the child, we're trying to get a sense. Uh, does their brain and their body work the way that it should for their age, uh, for their age, age group? The O represents overreactive stress response. And that's the physiology that people would, would sit with. John Gottman calls it diffused physiological arousal. It's your blood pressure, your blood sugars, etc. Well, most of the kids that we work with sit in a heightened state of stress. And that's because their physiology is switched on, um, which is important because teachers, for instance, will say, I don't understand what happened. The child went from zero to 60, just over a very small thing. And when you say, well, what if they never sit at zero? What if their physiology is always set at 40? Then to yes. go from 40 to 60 is just, and the, the educators will go, oh, oh, I hadn't thought of it that way. So the stress response is important. It's how stressed they sit on a daily basis. Um, the E uh, stands for emotional regulation. And that's, do they understand the language of emotion? If I say, You're really, you look really angry, do they even understand anger or kind of the nuance of anger? Because it's a family of emotions that starts with irritation and frustration in the shallow end of the pool. But at the deep end, it could be fury. You know, their anger is nuclear. Um, and so helping them to understand where feelings sit in the body and what they're called and then how to recognize them in other people. Um, there's all kinds of social emotional learning curriculum that exist, And so we try to find the ones that work for the system that we're working with. That's good. Um, the A is attachment. So attachment style <clears throat> and relationships. And that's looking at how does the child's insecurity typically manifest in a self-protective way. So do they push people away? Do they cling? Uh, are they secure? I just try to get a sense of how they connect with either adults or their peers. Um, the I is identity development. And that's, if you think about the core beliefs that you have about you, the more time I spend talking to you, I learn about all the really good things, uh, things that you like to do if you're a runner, a, a biker, a skier. But then there's also things that you might be holding back from me. But if I get to know you and I'm trustworthy, eventually you'll say, well, these things also are true about me because identity is what we believe about self. Um, so the work we do with kids is really important because the kids that, that we're working with typically have a shame-based anchor. Yes. They, they've, been, yes. they've moved around 20 times. They've been told you don't measure up, you're broken, and they believe these, these beliefs about themselves. Yes. We have to know what those things are. Yes. Um, then B is behavioral regulation. That's uh, do they have the ability to regulate their anger or their stress? Um, we look at things like intensity, uh, frequency, duration um, at the front end to see what are, you know, how, how often these problem behaviors 
uh, show up because the system, the educators or the psychologists that we work with, they'll be identifying behavior as a as kind of the launching point. We have to address these things. Right. So we need to understand what the behavior is and how it shows up. And then lastly, cognitive and language development is the C. Uh, and that's trying to understand um, the, how do they understand what they're saying? Does their brain make sense out of what they're saying? Or do they, um, let you think about receptive language. Uh, do they have the ability to understand what I'm truly communicating? Mm -hmm. And this is where educators become uh, important because they will have um, literacy and numeracy and learning diagnoses, learning disability diagnoses. So um, that helps us to understand how the child might be lagging and we can catch up. If a child's behind two grades in reading, we can come up with some really creative strategies on helping them to, to learn where they're lagging. Yeah, you know, and um, just for our listeners, um, uh, if you want to look up more about this, you can check out the NCTSN white uh -huh. paper on um, domains um, that are impacted by children exposed to complex trauma. Yes. And their language is attachment is number one, biology, affect regulation, dissociation, behavioral control, cognition, and self-concept. Yes. But, you know, what I, even as a clinician, there's a lot of times I'm like, oh, wait, wait a minute. What are those stuff? You know, and so right. I think it's great that you've come up with the acronym and a way to really like keep this forefront in people's minds. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and that the language is more approachable. You know, mm -hmm. some of the language that I just read is not in the day to day vernacular yeah. of a teacher or a parent or, you know, it, it, yeah. it's kind of clinical jargon-ish. Well, you're right. <laughs> so that's so good that you've so done that. I was just going to say about the word dissociation. It, it, I mean, it's a very clinical word. And if yes. you're using it with a foster parent or a, a, an educator, um, they might feel a bit intimidated because it's so clinical. Yes. But if you say, does the child ever seem to zone out? And all of a sudden the educator goes, oh yeah, all the time. They daydream. That's what we mean. You know, they drift away and then they come back, then they drift away. And quite often those things happen when they're in a heightened state of stress. Mm -hmm. So if we focus on lowering their stress and their arousal, they will be more likely to focus in a classroom for a longer period of time. And if you're a healthy and safe, predictable adult, they, the child is more likely to listen to what you have to say for a longer period of time if their stress system is already uh, also being uh, co-managed. Yeah, and I know we're not going to have time to go in depth with, uh, you know, the assessment, but I do wonder, uh, it, you know, if you could share with listeners, if you look at these domains, seven domains with our yeah. clinical jargon that we have in our articles about this or the wonderful way you've come up with people to remember them, how are you measuring each of them? Okay, so at the front end, um, when we work with any child, we get all of the adults that are stakeholders in a room. And yes. we have a formal assessment. It's a structured interview. And is this uh, something you've developed? Yeah, yes, it is. And okay. it's, it's, it's based on the, the white paper that you've referenced. Yes. So we have a, it's a standardized, formalized process that um, we would take adults through. And so under the N, for instance, the neurological and biological around the room, we'll say, uh, tell us about the child's fine motor skills. Tell us about mm -hmm. their sense of balance and their big muscles, so their gross mm -hmm. motor skills. 
And over conversation, eventually get a picture. And so there's a scoring system that's part of this uh, uh, functional developmental assessment that at the end of the end of the assessment will have a um, it, it's called a profile graph which is a picture representation of the scores that we've just discussed. And based on that profile graph, we'll say, huh, what do we want to target as an intervention moving forward? And typically we'll address the three areas that I'd mentioned before. We have to address attachment. We have to address uh, the overreactive stress response. And we have to address identity because over time, because this is a developmental maturity model, we know that a child who's 10 is not going to stay stuck at that level of development. They're going to evolve when they're 15, they'll be at a different level of sophistication. So if we do the, the right work in the right way and we start building value through identity, then by 15, the child may say, you know what? I can do education. I can do math. I can read. Um, if they stay stuck in a shame-based identity, they may tell themselves, I'm stupid, I can't, and they'll shut down any kind of opportunities for growth and learning. So by addressing their identity in a safe and healthy way with adults, um, they become more trusting. So, I mean, I, go ahead. I was just going to say, um, I feel like this identity thing is often overlooked with kids that we work with. It, it's mm -hmm. almost like we're so busy worrying about like stopping behaviors that we're not thinking about, like, who is this kid? Like, right. what do they even like, mm -hmm. you know? And this is one of the things that I've really appreciated about the ARC model, um, attachment regulation yeah. and competency, where that whole C part is yeah. really looking at that. And I, um, I think that for a lot of uh, kids that we work with, it's been – difficult for them to even know what do I enjoy what's my favorite color what's my favorite food you know I mean these things yeah. that they seem so so basic and so obvious and I think sometimes we get so caught up in like you know these these serious behaviors these dangerous behaviors mm -hmm. these harmful behaviors that we're like missing the obvious yeah like yes. those kinds of things right Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So we, we help some of the adults that we work with to think about what safety looks like as a child. Yes. And safety, if you, if you don't have language for it, well, it's really a rhythmic, predictable, non-invasive uh, connection with adults. And so we use the word safe um, as another acronym to help adults. Uh, if, they, if they engage the child in a way that's structured, attached, fun and uh, encouraging at the end. The fun part is Barbara Fredrickson out of, I think, UC uh, Chapel, uh, Chapel Hill in um, the Eastern US, her broaden and build theory is all about if you can have fun, you, you disarm the child because they're laughing. Okay, I'm a therapist therapist yeah. trainer, so you're speaking my okay. language here. <laughs> so it's, it's, it goes to what you're saying. Yes. If you can help adults to, to connect with the child and learn who is the child, what do they like? If they don't know, can we help them learn their favorite color or their favorite food? And how would we make that fun? Yes. Um, that's a way we build attachment. And this is not only helping um, the body and brain and self-concept of the child, but also the parent. We know when the parents Absolutely. are having fun, yeah. this is releasing different um, types of neurochemistry in their brains. Yes. And, 
and allowing them to to feel connected and yeah. good and motivated and getting them out of you know what uh Balin and Hughes talk about blocked care yes um, so um yeah yeah so good yeah so I'm sitting here and I'm so I'm imagining all these people around the table and you know from the different areas of the child's life and the skeptic in me is like, oh yeah, this has been tried. You know, in the United States, we have these initiatives where we're going to have, um, we we call them different things. You know, um, different names for the different teams, and you know, basically the idea of bringing everyone together, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that, and you know, somehow it just often doesn't go anywhere. And so right. I'm I'm really listening. Um, closely to what you're doing that allow, because in theory, that sounds like a great concept, right? Yes. But there's something that you're doing differently that is making it succeed where, whether you call it the core treatment team model or multidisciplinary <laughs> approach or, or, or we're, we're starting this, you know, it, they'll come up with some acronym where parents, foster parents, caseworker, clergy, grandma, I mean, everyone's coming and, 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 and it's all going to make a big difference. And it doesn't, it doesn't. And then it goes away and the next initiative comes. So I'm, I'm asking you a hard question here, mm-hmm. like distill why this is working, distill right. down to some nuggets of why you think it's just not the next like right. big initiative. So we've we've been doing this since 2009. Um, and I think one of the reasons that it's had some success, is it wasn't a top-down government initiative. It wasn't some think tank coming up with a plan and saying, here's the next greatest. Right. What it was was really just an organic grassroots um group of people that said, hey, why don't we try to do things differently? And yes. because the government um, in, in my province was interested in kind of the big picture cost savings, uh, they said, okay, we'll spend a bit of money to see, will this thing work? And because we do assessments on intake to set up the strategies, and we reassess at six months, 12 months, 18 months, we have a, a, a data set that is able to show government this stuff works. So it's evidence-based. And so if you're talking to a policymaker and you're able to say, we're not making up um, really creative narratives, we're showing you the evidence. Um, it's quite compelling. Mm-hmm. And so because it's grassroots and um, it, it, it's less threatening, so mm-hmm. people don't show up to a meeting with their hackles up. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we do is we start off by saying, we recognize that everybody in the room has their area of expertise. We want to honor that. We want to include it in our collaborative process. Um, and so where you have something that's quite um, specialized and you think is really important, we factor that in. But at the front end, what we say to people is, but if we can all agree, um, we're going to use these seven domains as the framework through which we strategize. Mm-hmm. And so people don't feel threatened by that. They're able to say, okay, well, I could see that my expertise in education will be honored um, when we talk about cognitive and language challenges. Oh, I love that. That's so good. Yeah. And psychiatrists, for instance, will show up and they'll say, well, the child does have to be on this medication for this diagnosis. And we'll say, okay, we'll honor the diagnosis. But if things change over the course of time, like their attention deficit-like symptoms uh, start to reduce, they become more focused, 
can we agree that maybe we change some meds or we do at least a med review? And most psychiatrists are quite happy to do that if they, if they see the positive change that's happening. And so it's actually quite fun because it's, it's encouraging team to truly be team. So here's another thing just to, to, to button it up. At the front end, we'll say um, because we're working collaboratively, one of the things that's really important aside from being professional and collegial is we don't want to make big ticket moves without consulting the team. So for instance, you may have a, a foster or sorry, a social worker saying, I'm going to move this child from this resource into a brand new resource. And if they don't bring it to the team first, they're going to recreate trauma that will impact every system. So what we'll encourage them to do is, can you bring that conversation to the table first? And then we talk about um, you know, how that may impact, impact the school uh, or some of the therapies that are in place. Uh, it's really just important to have big ticket items on the table so that we can co-strategize. Yeah, so that you can, you know, if that does ha have to happen, how can it be the least traumatizing, disruptive, et cetera, yeah. re-traumatizing, disruptive, et cetera, as possible? You know, another thing that I'm thinking about as I think about many different teams and new initiatives and approaches I've been part of um, is so much of this, too, is about the teacher or the caregiver uh, their own attachment history, their yes. own trauma history, their own ability to control their impulses. Yes. So um, what would you say have been some of your best ways of engaging folks to really look at some of that um, as somebody who comes from attachment theory perspective, I believe that we're really looking at the relationship and not yes. just the child and not just the caregiver, yeah. um, that our client is the relationship, not, yes. you know, so, and I know all of us, you know, at times have struggled with how do we engage, you know, what about this teacher that yeah. like loses it on kids or, yeah. you know, what about, um, it, it's clear that this caregiver is really being triggered by, yeah. Perhaps something that is separate from this child. You know yes. what I'm saying? Yes. yes. So t talk about a little of that because that's a key to success. I know <laughs> that's a big question as we're winding down here. If you could just throw out <laughs> how you deal with that, Dr. Austin, yeah. that would be great. We'd all be happy. <laughs> so one of, one of the things that we really encourage everybody to do at the front end is to, is to learn the model because we talk about the words of neurological and biological maturity. We use them um, every time we get together. <clears throat> Eventually, they start learning the model and as it applies to themselves. Okay. So if I'm, if I'm using um, a social-emotional learning curriculum, um, for instance, zones of regulation is one that's quite popular. Yes. If the school is using it and they're saying the child is always red, they're not yellow, and we're trying to get them back to green, then we'll try to get that system used in the foster placement. We'll try to get, if there's a therapist on, on board, like a play therapist, we get them using the language so that the child could, um, you know, learn in different environments. It's the same thing. That's yeah. where the predictability is. Yes. But at the front end, what we'll do is we'll also tell the adults to think about what their triggers are, to think about their own stress response. So on a scale of one to 10, where do they sit on a daily basis in their classroom? Um, where do they sit with this particular child? 
And when the child does become dysregulated, what is their, what do they do? Like, do they pull away and distance themselves and their own attachment style? Uh, or do they try to engage in a way that's healthy and predictable? And then we also do things like mindfulness and um, savoring as exercises, teaching the adults, if you know that you sit at seven out of 10 at the end of your workday as an educator, how do we get you to calm down in a way that's predictable and rhythmic? And so mindfulness is a, it's low hanging fruit. It's engaged in, in almost every area of industry these days um, as self-care or we'll even have the conversation about self-care. What will, what will add value to your evening when you're not an educator, but when, when you're with your own family or with your own um, systems. And so we encourage people to do exercise and to eat well and to, to build really healthy rhythms into their own lives. Um, because all of us have a way of dealing with our stress. And some of them are healthy, some are, are unhealthy. Um, and all of us have an attachment style that gets triggered by someone at some point. So, we help the adults learn their own way of kind of dealing with life and encourage um, healthier, healthier engagement. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, uh, just a couple of logistical questions. Um, I'm curious, you know, the average size of a team, I'm curious how long and how frequent these meetings are. Yeah. Um, I'm curious how long, how often kids are seen if they're, I mean, is there a clinician there or something? Like how, how does all that work? Yeah. So the, the largest team I've been a part of had 15 professionals in it. Yes. <clears throat> and um, it was very cumbersome because you have 15 different voices. Mm -hmm. um, if a team is around five people, that's mm -hmm. ideal. So okay. I would be there. I'd have a foster parent, educator, maybe the uh, educational assessment uh, assistant. Um, and I might, um, even outreach workers, those types of people would, would be important at the, at the meeting. A meeting is only going to take an hour to an hour and a half. Uh, we'll meet once a month. And the meetings are very focused because what will happen is in any meeting, I'm sure you've been in these, <clears throat> quite often what happens is we end up admiring the problem and we talk about the crisis of the week and that dominates the meeting. Mm -hmm. What we'll do is we'll do a very cows. quick check. Yeah, right. the cows. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. forget what model that comes out of. But. Yeah. <laughs> so what we do is at the front end, we'll say, okay, we'll honor the problem for two minutes. And then we move on to talking about how are the strategies working and where they're working uh, well. We encourage people. We, um, uh, so then it's solution focused. It's solution focused. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Because you, you're right. The whole meeting could be derailed hearing how horrible it's been since we met last met. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and, so, and I do think people need space to share that and support in that, but you're saying yeah. in this meeting, we, we're trying to structure it and steer it this way. Absolutely. And then when we have strategies that are working, um, we, you know, we, we celebrate them. So we, I have one foster parent uh, last week. I attended one of these meetings where we did the six month assessment and this child had made a significant shift in behavior. Um, so positive development uh, identity had a huge uh, bump as did attachment. And so we were exploring with the foster parent um, some of her, some of the rhythms that she was using with this child. This is a 12-year-old dysregulated, moved around lots. The adult 
foster parent uh, had set up bedtime routines where she would get the kid to come and cuddle with a blanket and she would simply read to her <clears throat> at a age, um, not at a 12 year old level, she was reading childhood books, but just helping the child to kind of feel safe. And she had done this as part of the rhythm over, over the last couple of months. And this kid was settling deeply into that type of practice. So in the meeting, where, th where people are doing things well, we really honor them. So that's something that doesn't happen in our clinical meetings often, where, where we say to someone who's also a professional, you are doing excellent work. Keep up the good job. Mm, well, nice. by telling a foster parent that they're doing a good job also helps them to feel like they've got real value in the system. Yeah. And um, so we do a lot of praise. And I don't think foster parents hear that a lot. Yeah. No, they don't. Typically, the, the, they'll hear really where, they're, where they've got problems from the social worker. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, gosh, this has been really great. I, I hear um, all the many models that you're pulling from and how comprehensive you've put this together. Um, and um, I hear your adult learning background in terms yeah. of uh, which, you know, more of us need that. Um, if we can't give this information in ways that people can grasp and understand and hang on to, um, you know, at Shadag, we sometimes have like cue cards, you know, up on yeah. the walls about different things um, that we're trying to help people remember. Yes. Um, and I think, um, you know, your, your training and experience in that and bringing it forward comes out. So, um, I'm really excited about the work that you're doing and happy that we got to speak with you today. Um, what about Thank if folks want to know more about this or check anything out about this? Um, is there a way to reach you or a website or anywhere you've you know, published anything about your assessments, that sort of thing? Yeah, you, you talked about the white paper um, earlier there's we have on our website it's complextrauma.ca um, we have a lot of free material that uh, is oh, just yeah. designed to help people learn more and come up with practical strategies and um, I, that would probably be a starting point so that's email, uh, directly to the, to the company and dot ca complex trauma dot ca yeah. Great, great. Well, all of us love hearing, you know, free resources. Uh, so, so yeah. that that's really good. And and thank you for for sharing a place for people to find some of that. And um, thank you for the conversation today and letting all of us hear about the lovely work you're doing there. Well, Karen, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pr a pleasure to be on your on your podcast. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future episodes. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.